remember quite well the embarrassment that I felt a few years ago when I watched a local news story about a church here in Houston that was having an internal dispute over whether, they, whether or not they should remove their pastor. The reason it was a TV news story was that one faction in the church decided to seek a legal remedy to the situation in the court system here in Houston. They couldn't come to an agreement, so they decided to sue. The civil court system would then decide if the pastor stayed or went. It was pretty embarrassing. I'm sure that they felt justified in doing so. I'm also sure that they were at their wits end with the whole situation and they saw this as the only way out. But I'm not so sure that the course of action that they decided upon was consistent with biblical teaching in this area. Is a civil lawsuit the best way to handle problems that arise between members of a local church? Our passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, gives us some guidance in this area. Before we go too far into the subject, though, let me say this. And listen carefully, please. The Bible does not, does not prohibit a Christian from seeking a legal remedy to a problem, either civil or criminal. The Bible doesn't prohibit that. The Apostle Paul, the human author of the letter that we study, himself sought a legal remedy to certain situations that he faced throughout his ministry through the Roman court system, once even exercising his right as a Roman citizen and appealing to Caesar for justice. The Caesar at the time was a man named Nero, a man who was hardly righteous. Matter of fact, a case could be made that Nero was one of the worst human beings that's ever lived, one of the most immoral human beings that's ever lived. And I'm not being hyperbolic there. So there are times when the court system does need to be taken into consideration. Yet are there times when a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ should refrain from seeking a remedy to a problem through the court system? Our passage today says, yes, there are such times. As we've been working our way through this Corinthian letter, we've observed that the Corinthian church had a problem with pride. Among other things, they were not nearly as spiritual as they thought that they were. In fact, some of what they called spiritual was imported straight from the secular Corinthian culture. In the previous chapter, chapter 5, Paul cites a situation that was occurring inside the church to make his point. Something was happening inside the church that it would even embarrass, it would even shock the Gentiles. And that was a man was sleeping with his stepmother. And the church was doing nothing about it. There was no indication that the church was celebrating it. But they were looking the other way. While at the same time boasting about their own spiritual maturity. About their own spirituality. And Paul, we saw, slapped that down rather forcefully. That was chapter 5. In chapter 6, Paul now will cite a second situation inside the church that demonstrates that their claim to spiritual maturity was far from accurate. Someone in the church had filed a lawsuit against someone else in the church in the civil courts in Corinth. The person was content to allow an unbeliever to settle the dispute. 
This is another illustration that the Corinthian culture was making its way into the Corinthian church. By the way, there's nothing wrong with a, cult, with a church being culturally sensitive to the, to the community as it ministers to the community. Of course not. There's everything right with being culturally sensitive. But we must be careful not to allow the negative aspects of the culture to negatively influence the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ as it ex- is expressed to that culture. Something we need to keep in mind in terms of background that will help us in a large way, understanding what's going on in this passage. The Corinthians were Greeks, but they were under Roman rule at the time that 1 Corinthians was written. So they were Greco-Roman in their culture. In the Greco-Roman court system, both civil and criminal, the court system was far from impartial and had a reputation for being grossly corrupt. Money talked in these courts. And if you were poor, you had very little opportunity to win your case. Bribery to get what one wanted was commonplace. Cicero wrote, and I quote him, The courts will never convict any man if he has money. End quote. Specifically in Corinth, one ancient Roman historian quipped that there were, and I quote again, Lawyers innumerable perverting justice. Apuleius, who was a philosopher and a novelist who lived just shortly after 1 Corinthians was written, wrote that, and I quote him again, that judges at the time were gowned vultures, end quote, and that they, again, I quote, sell all their judgments for money. The Apostle Paul himself spent extra time in prison in Caesarea because he wouldn't give Felix a bribe to let him out. My point is that the court system, the Greco-Roman court system, at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and for some time afterwards, was a corrupt institution where the wealthy were able to take unfair advantage of the poor by exercising their prestige and their influence. In terms of administering justice, it was more often than not a joke in the Greco-Roman system. Even those who decried the system, like Cicero, were said by later historians to have used the system to their advantage anytime they could. Having said that, we should keep in mind that in our court system today, we find many fine Christians serving in a judicial capacity, as well as many wonderful Christian attorneys, and also Christians that are found on almost every jury that we See seated in this city. So we have people of integrity, Christian people of integrity, participating in the court systems in the United States. And our system, while not perfect, is not the same system which was present in Corinth, as Paul writes this letter. But the principle still holds true. There are times when lawsuits shouldn't be filed. Paul is not simply frustrated that one Christian would take another Christian to court, but that they would do so in a system that was dominated by pagans, pagan unbelievers, and was so thoroughly corrupt and that was weighted for the wealthy over the poor. That's his primary concern 
that you would seek help from them rather than from someone inside the church. I invite you to open your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As Paul continues this thesis on why the Corinthian church is not quite so spiritual as they might think that they are. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The context here makes it clear that the neighbor mentioned is a Christian. The way it is phrased indicates that this is a civil case, not a criminal case. We don't have the right to overlook criminal issues. That's been brought home in a pretty big way in the last few months with the whole Penn State tragedy. Some things can't be handled in-house. So this is not talking about a criminal issue. Criminal matter is not in view here. It's a pragma, according to the Greek text. It's a matter. It's an issue. The suggestion is that it's not really even of supreme importance. Maybe not completely trivial, but certainly not life-changing. And Paul says that they dare to take a matter like this to a corrupt secular court rather than seek the wisdom of fellow believers in the church to settle the matter. Paul's not happy with them. It's not as though there there were not those in the church that had enough wisdom to solve whatever problem this was and to render a fair assessment of the situation, but they weren't going to do that. And these kind of things give churches terrible testimony. It's a little difficult, wouldn't you say, to attend a church and sit on one side of the church when somebody on the other side of the church is in court suing you? I know that's hitting close to home for some people that are here today, because I I happen to know some of you here today have been the recipients of lawsuits that were filed by members of your own church. I don't know anybody here today that's filed one of those lawsuits, but I do know people that were the recipient of that lawsuit. It makes it really difficult to fellowship. When you're fighting it out in a civil court, and again, I'm not talking about criminal here, but we're talking about a civil court, it's a little difficult to stand up and sing praises to the Lord together when you're going to go down on Monday and get sued by the same person. You can see why Paul's so upset about this all the while, acting like they're so spiritual. We are so mature here in Corinth. The first church of maturity right there in Corinth. And Paul says, I don't think so. Let me give you several reasons why. The first one, you've got a guy sleeping with his mother, and you're doing, or stepmother, you're doing nothing about it. And second, you've got lawsuits that are being filed, at least one, by one member of the church against another member of the same local church. It's like Paul wanted to shake him and say, what are you thinking? Now again, Paul's not against appealing to secular judges. He did it himself. But he wasn't trying to sue a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. That ruins the testimony. In verses 2 through 4, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? This is another indication that this pragma, this matter, this issue, is not a life-changing thing. Paul's almost, he's not trivializing it, but he's coming close. And can't you even handle these small things? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have a law court dealing with matters of this life... You appoint them as judges of who are no account in the church. 
Paul mentions this judgment by the world. He's saying, listen, you're going to judge the world. Shouldn't you be able to judge this small thing? Isn't there someone in the church that you could sit down with and adjudicate this? The judgment of the world by the saints will be in conjunction with our ruling with Christ in the millennium. If we will rule that way in the future, Paul argues, perhaps it would be a better course of action today to seek a judgment from one of the saints, one of your fellow believers now, rather than an unrighteous, corrupt judge who wants a bribe in the civil court system in the Greco-Roman world. If the Christians can't handle mundane disputes among themselves now, Paul is saying, they're going to have a really difficult time judging the world and angels later. The term that's used for law court here in this passage, in verse 4, criterion, Criterion, you, you can almost hear the English word criterion from that, was usually reserved for a lower, lower level court of justice. Again, reinforcing the idea that whatever happened here is not earth shattering. There's no child abuse that's taken care of here. Of course, if there's child abuse in this church, you're going to get reported to the authorities and you're going to go to jail because we're not covering that up. If there's some criminal activity, it's not going to get covered up. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a rather mundane thing that would have been handled by a lower level court, even at best. A lot of people want to know what's the issue. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Some speculate that it was a sexual issue, given the position of the reference in this letter and the report of the sexual perversion in chapter 5, and then the command not to fornicate later on in this chapter. But that's really hard to validate. The text doesn't tell us what it is. Whatever it was, it was not a matter of child abuse or a crime or anything like that. It was a lower-level, mundane matter. Anything past that is just speculation as to what it might have been. We don't have any way of knowing, and we don't have to know to appreciate what Paul is saying here. Then in verses 5 through 7, I say this to your shame. Just like he slapped down the whole idea that you're a real spiritual church, but you've got this perversion going on and you're doing nothing about it. He's slapping this down too. I say this to your shame. Is it so that is there not among, among you one wise man who's able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. That's what's getting Paul's goat here. Instead of taking it to one of their fellow, fellow Christians who has the same standard of what's right and wrong, they're willing to take this dispute to a Greco-Roman court where the judge wants a bribe, or your case is not getting hurt. Or if it's hurt, you're certainly not going to win. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before, unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? The church at Corinth, at the time that Paul wrote this, was probably relatively small in accordance with today's standards. Maybe 15, 20, 25, 30 people, perhaps. But even though it was relatively small, and I'm guessing, we have no way of knowing how large the church was, but since they met in homes, or a home, it had to be relatively small. The church at Corinth wasn't that large, but there had to be somebody, even though maybe 30, let's say 30 people, there had to be somebody in there, Paul is saying, with enough wisdom 
to help you settle this matter. What he's saying is you don't need to take these kinds of things to secular courts with secular judges. You're already losing, even if you win the case. You've already lost just by taking it there. You should be ashamed of yourselves. What kind of testimony is this, Paul says? When all is taken into consideration, wouldn't it be better just to let it go? I know that's hard. With our system of justice, it's hard. But sometimes it's better just to let it go. In verse 8, Paul goes further and suggests that the filing of a lawsuit against a brother is itself a form of sin and wrongdoing and even defrauding. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. In the context, the wronging and defrauding is the filing of the trivial lawsuit over a mundane matter in a secular court where a judge wants a bribe. Once more, I must, I must say this. We're not talking apples to apples with the Greco-Roman court system and our court system in the United States today. Again, our system is not perfect, but this is not apples to apples. That system was totally corrupt, dominated by unbelievers who wanted a bribe. Our system does have certain checks and balances into it that even, even non-Christian judges are obligated to follow a law. Justice is supposed to be blind. So I'm, I'm not implying that it's apples to apples. But what I am saying is we can still learn something from this passage. And we ought not to be suing our fellow church members. That's what I'm taking from this passage. It's not a good testimony. Then in verses 9 through 11... Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Almost every time I've ever seen these verses quoted, verses 9 through 11, they were totally divorced from the context in which they were written. Usually these verses are used to promote a theology that Reformed people call the perseverance of the saints or lordship salvation. That if you do these things consistently, you can't be a believer. You cannot have been a believer. Or maybe your faith was a false profession of faith, whatever that means. You said it, but you didn't really mean it, something like that. But I want to show you this morning that these verses are in a particular context. And I think it will make a world of difference for our understanding of this passage. First of all, we need to remember that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness. Of which the unrighteous can have no part. The unrighteous in this context, in verses 9 through 11, are those who are positionally unrighteous. Positionally unrighteous. Not experientially, but positionally unrighteous. Meaning that they are unbelievers. They're non-Christians. They haven't been justified. Their sins haven't been forgiven. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness of which the unrighteous can have no part. In the previous chapter, we don't even have to turn the page, most of us. In the previous chapter, Paul mentions 
some of these same sins and ascribes them to professing Christians. The point is, it's entirely possible for Christians to commit all of these sins. The point is not that these sins can only be committed by unbelievers, or an unbeliever who says he's a Christian but is not really a Christian, that had a head faith and not a heart faith, a head belief and not a heart belief. I would love for somebody to sit down and, and accurately explain to me the difference in that too. A head faith and not a heart faith. You know, you know what the difference is? 18 inches, that's what they say. That's cute and it's nice and it's pithy, but it means nothing. You either have faith or you don't have faith. This whole head and heart thing, give me a break. You either have faith or you don't have faith and you have it from the whole person or you don't have it from the whole person. That's not what this passage is about. That's nonsense. The point he's making is that these sins that he mentions, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, effeminate is a word that probably meant that referred to something like a male prostitute, or, or it was a male who allowed their body to be used in real perverse ways by others, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. The point is that these sins flow from unrighteousness and are consistent with an unbeliever, not a believer. Believers can commit these sins, but when believers commit these sins, it's inconsistent with who they are. That's why he wrote back in chapter 5, and he didn't mention all of these, but he mentioned some of them, immoral brother, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. It's, it's almost like he takes the beginning and the ends of the list back there. And he said, I told you not to associate with anyone that's a Christian that's, or even claims to be a Christian that's committing these things, because it's inconsistent with who they are. Christians sin. We sin every day. You don't have to amen it. But if we did amen it, and if we were honest, we'd all, it would be a chorus that was louder than any of the songs that we would have sung this morning. We've all sinned today. And that's not such a bold statement. It's just a real statement. And if you say you haven't, you probably don't know what sin is. But when we sin as Christians, it's inconsistent with who we are. When unbelievers sin, it's consistent with who they are. That's what sinners do, sin. We shouldn't be so surprised when that happens. The fascinating thing is that once you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, God no longer looks at you as a fornicator as an idolater, as a drunkard, as a swindler, and so forth. He doesn't look at you that way. You may commit those sins, but the eternal penalty for those sins has been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so important as we close today. In God's eyes, you may have stolen something, but as a Christian, you're a forgiven thief. He doesn't look at you as a thief. He doesn't look at you as a fornicator. He doesn't look at you as an adulterer, as a homosexual, as, as a feminine, as a drunkard. You may have committed those sins, but that's not who you are in his eyes. You were forgiven in the way he puts it. You were that way, some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you may commit a sin. You may, you may steal something, but you're not a thief in God's eyes, in terms of eternal judgment, 
The believer has been washed. The believer has been set apart. The believer has been justified. Which means that we've been declared righteous. We share the righteousness of God. That's how he views us. When, we, when he looks down upon us, he doesn't see a swindler. He sees someone who has been forgiven. He sees the blood of Christ, the visual imagery that's brought over from the Old Testament. When God looked down upon the altar, he saw the blood of the Lamb. He didn't see the sins. He saw the payment for those sins. And that's why when Satan accuses you, and there's every possibility that he does before the throne room of God, he did with Job. Look at him. Look at him. Did you see what she did today? And Jesus Christ says, yeah, I saw that. I paid for that one. Yeah, but did you see what he said yesterday? Yeah, I I paid for that one too. Would you just see what they're doing right now? Yes, I paid for those sins. Not happy about them, but I paid for them. I don't view them that way anymore. So the way that this is phrased here, these are unbelievers. In the context, they certainly are. Do you not know that the unrighteous, these are unbelievers, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? On the other hand, you will, and at at some future time, you will judge angels. And you will judge other human beings. They're not even going to be there, Paul's saying. These unrighteous judges. Don't be deceived. These, These fornicators, these are people who fornicate but hadn't been forgiven. They're idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So you don't go to them to settle a dispute between you two believers. The Bible doesn't prohibit a Christian from seeking a legal remedy to a problem through the court system, either civil or criminal. That's not the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The point is that a lawsuit against a fellow believer is a poor testimony and creates disunity within the local church. It's far better when a situation like this arises to seek wisdom from within the church than to farm the decision out to a civil system. 